Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads, The Woman in White, the great psychological thriller from Wilkie Collins, first released in 1860, and the seventh book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television, and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. Now, without further ado, here's Marilyn to read us Wilkie Collins, The Woman in White. The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins First Epoch The story, begun by Walter Hartwright, of Clements Inn, Teacher of Drawing Chapter 1 This is the story of what a woman's patience can endure and what a man's resolution can achieve. If the machinery of the law could be depended on to fathom every case of suspicion and to conduct every process of inquiry with moderate assistance only from the lubricating influences of oil, of gold, the events which fill these pages might have claimed their share of the public attention in a court of justice. But the law is still, in certain inevitable cases, the pre-engaged servant of the long purse, and the story is left to be told for the first time in this place. As the judge might once have heard it, so the reader shall hear it now. No circumstance of importance, from the beginning to the end of the disclosure, shall be related on hearsay evidence. When the writer of these introductory lines... Walter Hartwright, by name, happens to be more closely connected than others with the incidents to be recorded, he will describe them in his own person. When his experience fails, he will retire from the position of narrator, and his task will be continued from the point at which he has left it off by other persons who can speak to the circumstances under notice from their own knowledge." just as clearly and positively as he has spoken before them. Thus, the story here presented will be told by more than one pen, as the story of an offence against the laws is told in court by more than one witness, with the same object, in both cases, to present the truth, always, in its most direct and most intelligible aspect, and to trace the course of one complete series of events by making the persons who have been most closely connected with them at each successive stage relate their own experience, word for word. Let Walter Hartwright, teacher of drawing, aged twenty-eight years, be heard first. Chapter 2 It was the last day of July. The long, hot summer was drawing to a close, and we, the weary pilgrims of the London pavement, were beginning to think of the cloud shadows on the cornfields and the autumn breezes on the seashore. For my own poor part, the fading summer left me out of health, out of spirits, and, if the truth must be told, out of money as well. During the past year, I had not managed my professional resources as carefully as usual, and my extravagance now limited me to the prospect of spending the autumn economically between my mother's cottage at Hampstead and my own chambers in town. The evening, I remember, was still and cloudy. 
The London air was at its heaviest. The distant hum of the street traffic was at its faintest. The small pulse of the life within me and the great heart of the city around me seemed to be sinking in unison, languidly and more languidly with the sinking sun. I roused myself from the book which I was dreaming over rather than reading, and left my chambers to meet the cool night air in the suburbs. It was one of the two evenings in every week which I was accustomed to spend with my mother and my sister, so I turned my steps northward in the direction of Hampstead. Events which I have yet to relate make it necessary to mention in this place that my father had been dead some years at the period of which I am now writing, and that my sister Sarah and I were the sole survivors of a family of five children. My father was a drawing-master before me. His exertions had made him highly successful in his profession, and his affectionate anxiety to provide for the future of those who were dependent on his labors had impelled him, from the time of his marriage, to devote to the ensuring of his life a much larger portion of his income than most men consider it necessary to set aside for that purpose. Thanks to his admirable prudence and self-denial, my mother and sister were left, after his death, as independent of the world as they had been during his lifetime. I succeeded to his connection, and had every reason to feel grateful for the prospect that awaited me at my starting in life. The quiet twilight was still trembling on the topmost ridges of the heath, and the view of London below me had sunk into a black gulf in the shadow of the cloudy night when I stood before the gate of my mother's cottage. I had hardly rung the bell before the house door was opened violently. My worthy Italian friend, Professor Pesca, appeared in the servant's place and darted out joyously to receive me with a shrill foreign parody on an English cheer. <laughs> on his own account, and I must be allowed to add, on mine also, the professor merits the honor of a formal introduction. Accident had made him the starting point of the strange family story which it is the purpose of these pages to unfold. I had first become acquainted with my Italian friend by meeting him at certain great houses where he taught his own language and I taught drawing. All I then knew of the history of his life was that he had once held a situation in the University of Padua, that he had left Italy for political reasons, the nature of which he uniformly declined to mention to anyone, and that he had been for many years respectably established in London as a teacher of languages. Without actually being a dwarf, for he was perfectly well-proportioned from head to foot. Pesco was, I think, the smallest human being I ever saw out of a showroom. Remarkable anywhere by his personal appearance, he was still further distinguished among the rank and file of mankind by the harmless eccentricity of his character. The ruling idea of his life appeared to be that he was bound to show his gratitude to the country which had afforded him an asylum and a means of subsistence by doing his utmost to turn himself into an Englishman. Not content with paying the nation in general the compliment of invariably carrying an umbrella, 
and invariably wearing gaiters and a white hat, the professor further aspired to become an Englishman in his habits and amusements, as well as in his personal appearance. Finding us distinguished as a nation by our love of athletic exercises, the little man, in the innocence of his heart, devoted himself impromptu to all our English sports and pastimes whenever he had the opportunity of joining them. Firmly persuaded that he could adopt our national amusements of the field by an effort of will, precisely as he had adopted our national gaiters and our national white hat. I had seen him risk his limbs blindly at a fox hunt and in a cricket field, and soon afterwards I saw him risk his life just as blindly in the sea at Brighton. We had met there accidentally and were bathing together. If we had been engaged in any exercise peculiar to my own nation, I should, of course, have looked after Pesca carefully. But as foreigners are generally quite as well able to take care of themselves in the water as Englishmen, it never occurred to me that the art of swimming might merely add one more to the list of manly exercises which the professor believed that he could learn impromptu. Soon after we had both struck out from shore, I stopped, finding my friend did not gain on me, and turned round to look for him. To my horror and amazement, I saw nothing between me and the beach but two little white arms which struggled for an instant above the surface of the water and then disappeared from view. When I dive for him, the poor little man was lying quietly coiled up at the bottom in a hollow of shingle, looking by many degrees smaller than I had ever seen him look before. During the few minutes that elapsed while I was taking him in, the air revived him and he ascended the steps of the machine with my assistance. With the partial recovery of his animation came the return of his wonderful delusion on the subject of swimming. As soon as his chattering teeth would let him speak, he smiled vacantly and said he thought it must have been the cramp. When he had thoroughly recovered himself and had joined me on the beach, his warm southern nature broke through all artificial English restraints in a moment. He overwhelmed me with the wildest expressions of affection, exclaimed passionately in his exaggerated Italian way that he would hold his life henceforth at my disposal, and declared that he should never be happy again until he had found an opportunity of proving his gratitude by rendering me some service which I might remember on my side to the end of my days. I did my best to stop the torrent of his tears and protestations by persisting in treating the whole adventure as a good subject for a joke, and succeeded at last, as I imagined, in lessening Pesca's overwhelming sense of obligation to me. Little did I think then, little did I think afterwards, when our pleasant holiday had drawn to an end, that the opportunity of serving me, for which my grateful companion so ardently longed, was soon to come, that he was eagerly to seize it on the instant, and that by doing so he was to turn the whole current of my existence into a new channel, and to alter me to myself, almost past recognition. Yet so it was. If I had not dived for Professor Pesca, 
when he lay underwater on his shingle bed, I should, in all human probability, never have been connected with the story which these pages will relate. I should never, perhaps, have heard even the name of the woman who has lived in all my thoughts, who has possessed herself of all my energies, who has become the one guiding influence that now directs the purpose of my life. 3. Pesca's face and manner, on the evening when we confronted each other at my mother's gate, were more than sufficient to inform me that something extraordinary had happened. It was quite useless, however, to ask him for an immediate explanation. I could only conjecture, while he was dragging me in by both hands, that, knowing my habits, he had come to the cottage to make sure of meeting me that night, and that he had some news to tell of an unusually agreeable kind. We both bounced into the parlour in a highly abrupt and undignified manner. My mother sat by the open window, laughing and fanning herself. Pesca was one of her especial favourites, and his wildest eccentricities were always pardonable in her eyes. Poor dear soul, from the first moment when she found out that the little professor was deeply and gratefully attached to her son, she opened her heart to him, unreservedly, and took all his puzzling foreign peculiarities for granted, without so much as attempting to understand any one of them. My sister Sarah, with all the advantages of youth, was, strangely enough, less pliable. She did full justice to Pesca's excellent qualities of heart, but she could not accept him implicitly, as my mother accepted him, for my sake. Her insular notions of propriety rose in perpetual revolt against Pesca's constitutional contempt for appearances— and she was always more or less undisguisedly astonished at her mother's familiarity with the eccentric little foreigner. I have observed, not only in my sister's case, but in the instances of others, that we of the young generation are nothing like so hearty and so impulsive as some of our elders. I constantly see old people flushed and excited by the prospect of some anticipated pleasure— which altogether fails to ruffle the tranquillity of their serene grandchildren. Are we, I wonder, quite such genuine boys and girls now as our seniors were in their time? Has the great advance in education taken rather too long a stride? And are we, in these modern days, just the least trifle in the world too well brought up? Without attempting to answer those questions decisively, I may at least record that I never saw my mother and my sister together in Pesca society without finding my mother much the younger woman of the two. On this occasion, for example, while the old lady was laughing heartily over the boyish manner in which we tumbled into the parlour, Sarah was perturbedly picking up the broken pieces of a teacup which the professor had knocked off the table in his precipitate advance to meet me at the door. "'I don't know what would have happened, Walter,' said my mother, "'if you were delayed much longer. Pesca has been half mad with impatience, and I have been half mad with curiosity. 
the professor has brought some wonderful news with him, in which he says you are concerned, and he has cruelly refused to give us the smallest hint of it till his friend Walter appeared. Very provoking. It spoils the set, murmured Sarah to herself, mournfully absorbed over the ruins of the broken cup. While these words were being spoken, Pisca, happily and fussily unconscious of the irreparable wrong which the crockery had suffered at his hands, was dragging a large armchair to the opposite end of the room so as to command us, all three, in the character of a public speaker addressing an audience. Having turned the chair with his back towards us, he jumped into it on his knees and excitedly addressed his small congregation of three from an impromptu pulpit. "'Now, my good dears,' began Pesca, who always said good dears when he meant worthy friends, "'listen to me. The time has come. I recite my good news. I speak at last.' "'Hear, hear,' said my mother, humoring the joke. "'The next thing he will break, Mama," whispered Sarah, "'will be the back of the best armchair.' I go back into my life, and I address myself to the noblest of created beings, continued Pesca, vehemently apostrophizing my unworthy self over the top rail of the chair. Who found me dead at the bottom of the sea through cramp, and who pulled me up to the top? And what did I say when I got into my own life and my own clothes again? Much more than was at all necessary. I answered as doggedly as possible, for the least encouragement in connection with this subject invariably let loose the professor's emotions in a flood of tears. I said, persisted Pesca, that my life belonged to my dear friend Walter for the rest of my days, and so it does. I said that I should never be happy again Till I had found the opportunity of doing a good something for Walter, and I have never been contented with myself till this most blessed day. Now, cried the enthusiastic little man at the top of his voice, the overflowing happiness bursts out of me at every pore of my skin like a perspiration, for on my faith and soul and honor the something is done at last. "'and the only word to say right now is, "'Right or right!' "'It may be necessary to explain here "'that Pesca prided himself on being a perfect Englishman "'in his language, as well as in his dress, manners, and amusements. "'Having picked up a few of our most familiar colloquial expressions, "'he scattered them about over his conversation "'whenever they happened to occur to him.' turning them, in his high relish for their sound, and his general ignorance of their sense, into compound words and repetitions of his own, and always running them into each other, as if they consisted of one long syllable. "'Among the fine London houses where I teach the language of my native country,' said the professor, rushing into his long-deferred explanation without another word of preface, "'there is one might fine in the big place called Portland. You all know where that is? Yes, 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 of course, of course. The fine house, my good dears, has got inside it a fine family. A mamma, fair and fat, 
three young misses, fair and fat, two young misters, fair and fat, and a papa, the fairest and the fattest of all, who is a mighty merchant up to his eyes in gold. A fine man once, but seeing that he has got a naked head and two chins, fine no longer at the present time. Now mind, I teach the sublime Dante to the young missus. And, <laughs> oh, my soul, bless my soul, it is not in human language to say how the sublime Dante puzzles the pretty heads of all three. No matter, all in good time, and the more lessons the better for me. Now, mind, imagine to yourselves that I am teaching the young missus today, as usual. We are all four of us down together in the hell of Dante, at the seventh circle. But no matter for that, all the circles are alike to the three young misses, fair and fat. At the seventh circle, nevertheless, my pupils are sticking fast. And I, to set them going again, recite, explain, and blow myself up red-hot with useless enthusiasm, when a creak of boots in the passage outside, and in comes the golden papa, the mighty merchant with the naked head and the two chins. <laughs> My good dears, I am closer than you think for to the business now. Have you been patient so far? Or have you said to yourselves, Deuce, what the deuce! Pesca is long-winded tonight. We declared that we were deeply interested. The professor went on. In his hand, the golden papa has a letter, and after he has made his excuse for disturbing us in our infernal region with the common mortal business of the house, he addresses himself to the three young misses, and begins, as you English begin everything in this blessed world that you have to say with a great, Oh, oh, my dears, says the mighty merchant, I have got here a letter from my friend, Mr... Ah, the name has slipped out of mind, but no matter. We shall come back to that. Yeah, yes, yes. Right, right, all right. So, the papa says, I have got a letter from my friend, the mister, and he wants a recommend from me of a drawing master to go down to his house in the country. My soul, bless my soul, when I hear the golden papa say those words, if I had been big enough to reach up to him, I should have put my arms round his neck and pressed him to my bosom in a long and grateful hug. As it was, I only bounced upon my chair. My seat was on thorns and my soul was on fire, so to speak, but, but I held my tongue and let papa go on. Perhaps you know, says this good man of money, twiddling his friend's letter this way and that in his golden fingers and thumbs. Perhaps you know, my dears, of a drawing master that I can recommend. The three young misses all look at each other and then say, with the indispensable great O to begin, Oh, do you know, Papa? But here is Mr. Pesca. At the mention of myself, I can hold no longer. The thought of you, my good dears, mounts like blood to my head. I start for my seat, as if a spike had grown up from the ground through the bottom of my chair. I address myself to the mighty merchant, and I say, English phrase, Dear sir, I have the man, 
the first and foremost drawing master of the world. Recommend him by the post tonight and send him off bag and baggage. <laughs> English phrase again. <laughs> send him off bag and baggage by the train tomorrow. Stop, stop, says Papa. Is he a foreigner or an Englishman? English to the bone of his back, I answer. Respectable, says Papa. Sir, I say, for this last question of his outrages me, and I have done being familiar with him. Sir, the immortal fire of genius burns in this Englishman's bosom, and what is more, his father had it before him. Never mind, says the golden barbarian of a papa. Never mind about his genius, Mr. Pesca. We don't want genius in this country unless it is accompanied by respectability. And then we are very glad to have it. Very glad indeed. Can your friend produce testimonials? Letters that speak to his character. I wave my hand negligently. <laughs> Letters, I say. <laughs> My soul, bless my soul. I should think so indeed. Volumes of letters and portfolios of testimonials, if you like. One or two will do, says this man of phlegm and money. Let him send them to me with his name and address. And stop, stop, Mr. Pesca, before you go to your friend. You had better take a note. Banknote, I say indignantly. No banknote, if you please, till my brave Englishman has earned it first. Banknote, says Papa, in great surprise. Who talked of banknote? I meant a note of the terms, a memorandum of what he is expected to do. Go on with your lesson, Mr. Pesca, and I will give you the necessary extract from my friend's letter. Down sits the man of merchandise and money to his pen ink and paper, and down I go once again into the hell of Dante, with my three young misses after me. In ten minutes' time, the note is written, and the boots of Papa are creaking themselves away in the passage outside. From that moment, on my faith and soul and honor, I know nothing more. The glorious thought that I have caught my opportunity at last, and that my grateful service for my dearest friend in the world is as good as done already, flies up into my head and makes me drunk. How I pull my young missus and myself out of our infernal region again, how my other business is done afterwards, how my little bit of dinner slides itself down my throat, I know no more than a man in the moon. Enough for me that here I am with the mighty merchant's note in my hand, as large as life, as hot as fire, and as happy as a king. <laughs> right, 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 all right. <laughs> Here the professor waved the memorandum of terms over his head and ended his long and voluble narrative with his shrill Italian parody on an English cheer. My mother rose the moment he had done, with flushed cheeks and brightened eyes. She caught the little man warmly by both hands. "'My dear good Pesca,' she said, 
I never doubted your true affection for Walter, but I am more than ever persuaded of it now. I am sure we are all very much obliged to Professor Pesca for Walter's sake, added Sarah. She half rose while she spoke, as if to approach the armchair in her turn, but observing that Pesca was rapturously kissing my mother's hands, looked serious and resumed her seat. If the familiar little man treats my mother in that way, how will he treat me? Faces sometimes tell truth, and that was unquestionably the thought in Sarah's mind as she sat down again. Although I myself was gratefully sensible of the kindness of Pesca's motives, my spirits were hardly so much elevated as they ought to have been by the prospect of future employment now placed before me. When the professor had quite done with my mother's hand, and when I had warmly thanked him for his interference on my behalf, I asked to be allowed to look at the note of terms which his respectable patron had drawn up for my inspection. Pesca handed me the paper with a triumphant flourish of the hand. Read, said the little man majestically. I promise you, my friend, the writing of the golden papa speaks with a tongue of trumpets for itself. The note of terms was plain, straightforward, and comprehensive at any rate. It informed me, first, that Frederick Fairley, Esquire, of Limridge House, Cumberland, wanted to engage the services of a thoroughly competent drawing-master for a period of four months, certain. Secondly, that the duties which the master was expected to perform would be of a twofold kind. He was to superintend the instruction of two young ladies in the art of painting in watercolours, and he was to devote his leisure time afterwards to the business of repairing and mounting a valuable collection of drawings which had been suffered to fall into a condition of total neglect. Thirdly, that the terms offered to the person who should undertake and properly perform these duties were four guineas a week, that he was to reside at Limbridge House, and that he was to be treated there on the footing of a gentleman. Fourthly, and lastly, that no person need think of applying for this situation unless he could furnish the most unexceptionable references to character and abilities. The references were to be sent to Mr. Fairley's friend in London, who was empowered to conclude all necessary arrangements. These instructions were followed by the name and address of Pesca's employer in Portland Place, and there the note or memorandum ended. The prospect which this offer of an engagement held out was certainly an attractive one. The employment was likely to be both easy and agreeable. It was proposed to me at the autumn time of the year when I was least occupied, and the terms, judging by my personal experience in my profession, were surprisingly liberal. I knew this. I knew that I ought to consider myself very fortunate if I succeeded in securing the offered employment, and yet no sooner had I read the memorandum than I felt an inexplicable unwillingness within me to stir in the matter. I had never in the whole of my previous experience found my duty and my inclination so painfully and so unaccountably at variance as I found them now. "'Oh, Walter, your father never had such a chance as this,' said my mother, 
when she had read the note of terms and had handed it back to me. "'Such distinguished people to know,' remarked Sarah, straightening herself in the chair. "'And on such gratifying terms of equality, too.' "'Yes, yes, the terms in every sense are, are, are tempting enough,' I replied impatiently. "'But before I send in my testimonials, I, I should like a, a little time to consider.' "'Consider?' exclaimed my mother. "'Why, Walter, what is the matter with you?' "'Consider,' echoed my sister. "'What a very extraordinary thing to say under the circumstances.' "'Consider?' chimed in the professor.' "'What is there to consider about? "'Answer me this. "'Have you not been complaining of your health? "'And have you not been longing for what you call "'a smack of the country breeze? "'Well, there in your hand is the paper "'that offers you perpetual choking mouthfuls of country breeze "'for four months' time. "'Is it not so? "'Ha! "'Again, you want money. "'Well, is four golden guineas a week nothing?' "'My soul, bless my soul, only give it to me, "'and my boots shall creak like the golden papas "'with a sense of the overpowering richness of the man who walks in them. Four guineas a week, and more than that, "'the charming society of two young misses. "'And more than that, your bed, your breakfast, your dinner, "'your gorging English teas and lunches and drinks of foaming beer, "'all for nothing!' "'Why, Walter, my dear good friend, deuce what the deuce! "'For the first time in my life I have not eyes enough in my head to look and wonder at you.' "'Neither my mother's evident astonishment at my behaviour, "'nor Pesca's fervid enumeration of the advantages offered to me by the new employment "'had any effect in shaking my unreasonable disinclination to go to Limbridge House.' After starting all the petty objections that I could think of to going to Cumberland, and after hearing them answered, one after another, to my own complete discomfiture, I tried to set up a last obstacle by asking what was to become of my pupils in London while I was teaching Mr. Fairley's young ladies to sketch from nature. The obvious answer to this was that the greater part of them would be away on their autumn travels and that the few who remained at home might be confided to the care of one of my brother drawing-masters, whose pupils I had once taken off his hands under similar circumstances. My sister reminded me that this gentleman had expressly placed his services at my disposal during the present season, in case I wished to leave town. My mother seriously appealed to me not to let an idle caprice stand in the way of my own interests and my own health, and Pesca piteously entreated that I would not wound him to the heart by rejecting the first grateful offer of service that he had been able to make to the friend who had saved his life. The evident sincerity and affection which inspired these remonstrances would have influenced any man with an atom of good feeling in his composition. Though I could not conquer my own unaccountable perversity, I had at least virtue enough to be heartily ashamed of it, and to end the discussion pleasantly by giving way, and promising to do all that was wanted of me. The rest of the evening passed merrily enough in humorous anticipations of my coming life with the two young ladies in Cumberland. Pesca, 
inspired by our national grog, which appeared to get into his head, in the most marvelous manner, five minutes after it had gone down his throat, asserted his claims to be considered a complete Englishman by making a series of speeches in rapid succession, proposing my mother's health, my sister's health, my health, and the healths in mass of Mr. Fairley and the two young misses, pathetically returning thanks himself, immediately afterwards, for the whole party. A secret water said my little friend confidentially, as we walked home together. I am flushed by the recollection of my own eloquence. My soul bursts itself with ambition. One of these days I go into your noble parliament. It is the dream of my whole life to be Honorable Pesca, M.P. The next morning I sent my testimonials to the professor's employer in Portland Place. Three days passed, and I concluded with secret satisfaction that my papers had not been found sufficiently explicit. On the fourth day, however, an answer came. It announced that Mr. Fairley accepted my services and requested me to start for Cumberland immediately. All the necessary instructions for my journey were carefully and clearly added in a postscript. I made my arrangements, unwillingly enough, for leaving London early the next day. Towards evening, Pesca looked in on his way to a dinner party to bid me goodbye. I shall dry my tears in your absence, said the professor gaily, with this glorious thought. It is my auspicious hand that has given the first push to your fortune in the world. Go, my friend, when your sun shines in Cumberland— English proverb, in the name of heaven, make your hay. Marry one of the two young misses, become Honorable Cartwright MP, and when you are on the top of the ladder, remember that Pesca, at the bottom, has done it all. I tried to laugh with my little friend over his parting jest, but my spirits were not to be commanded. Something jarred in me, almost painfully, while he was speaking his light farewell words. When I was left alone again, nothing remained to be done but to walk to the Hampstead cottage and bid my mother and Sarah goodbye. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads The Woman in White. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This is the seventh book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. We invite you to go back and listen to Marilyn read A Room with a View, Pride and Prejudice, The Age of Innocence, Anne of Green Gables, Jane Eyre, and A Christmas Carol. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.